If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are you a true Christian? Are you a true Christian? That was a question looming over a conversation I had at a restaurant one time. I had come with my laptop and my Bible and was desiring to make use of the free Wi-Fi and get some work done. And uh, two ladies sat down beside me and almost immediately observed my Bible, asked what I was doing, and engaged me in conversation. And at first it was friendly conversations about where I went to church and, and various things. But very soon it became... It became a pelting of questions, one after the other, ultimately seeking to determine if, in their eyes, I was a true Christian. So, what is a true Christian? It's a good question, but it assumes a larger question, doesn't it? What is true Christianity? Uh, does such a thing even exist? Can, there, can we know what true Christianity is? Many shows on television today, many books on the shelves of the stores will say there is no such thing as true Christianity. Uh, Many scholars and even some uh, pop culture icons will say that in the earliest days of Christianity, there were lots of different beliefs, lots of different doctrines, all uh, vying for prominence. And it wasn't until the political maneuverings in Rome a couple hundred years later that Christianity uh, began to be put together as a set belief, as a new religion. Others, like our famous president, Thomas Jefferson, wanted to, and still want, to take the moral teachings of Jesus, which they find admirable, and divorce them from the so-called made-up miracles. Surely they say the miracles are all fabricated. They didn't really happen. It was something the disciples made up to give greater authenticity and authority to Jesus. So for them, the moral teachings, the ethical teachings of Jesus represent true Christianity, but without the formal religion. We could go on and on. There's lots of different versions of true Christianity that people have. The question is, who is right? Is it even possible to know who is right when we think about true Christianity? Well, at least one person, and many, many more, believed that it was possible to know what true Christianity was. One of the writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, goes out of his way several times, again and again, to say that the faith first believed, the faith first taught by Jesus himself and believed by his disciples needs to be held on to, needs to be preserved and kept from change, and needs to be passed on from one generation to the next over and over and over again. That there is a faith given once for all the saints that that faith should be passed on and on and on. Thus, like the rest of the Bible, he argues there is one true Christianity which we can know and which we should believe. So the question becomes, what is this true Christianity? And more importantly, what difference does it make for us today? Is a man who died 2,000 years ago relevant for us today? Does he still matter? These are the questions that we want to answer this morning. And what we will see is that the very essence of true Christianity, what it was then, what it still is today, can be found in what the Bible calls the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to understand these things, we want to go to a letter written by the Apostle Paul, a letter written to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. And at the end of that letter, where he has sought to correct their errors and also encourage them in their faithfulness, he ultimately says, your problems with living as Christians, your difficulty is that you have forgotten the basics. 
you have forgotten the gospel of Christ. And so he says, I want to write and remind you of the thing that you have forgotten. And so this morning, we want to see what is this thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the essence of true Christianity, that we might see not only what Christ taught, what Christ lived, what Christ's disciples believed, but why we should believe it today. So follow along as I read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of God this morning. From these verses, we see three basic truths about the gospel of Christ. Therefore, three basic truths upon which hinge all of true Christianity. First, we see this. The gospel brings salvation. The gospel brings salvation. In chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Paul says that he preached this gospel to the Corinthians. He says he preached it, he proclaimed it, and they received it. In verse 11 he says they received it in faith. They believed the message that he was preaching to them. He says therefore now they stand in this message of the gospel and they are being saved by it. The gospel is something that brings salvation. But what is a gospel anyway? Maybe maybe we should start there and ask, what is this thing called a gospel? We hear people use that expression all the time, even in popular culture today. When people want to convince you, they are telling, uh, they're being honest with you. They will say, I'm telling you gospel truth, right? But you also can go to a music store. Well, who am I kidding? Nobody goes to a music store anymore. You go online and you download from Amazon or iTunes or someplace and you will find a whole section called gospel music, Right? So what, what is this thing called a gospel? What is Paul talking about? Well, remember that Paul was a Jew living in the first century Roman Empire. That means he spoke Greek. It was the trade language of the day. If you wanted to do business, if you wanted to cross other cities, you needed to know Greek. And in the Greek language and the Greek culture, the idea of a gospel is actually pretty common and pretty important. The word is euangelion, which is not nearly as important as what it means, good news. Good news. You see, for the Greeks, it was the good news of a report that the battle had been won. 
The Greeks would go off to war. They would send their, their armies to fight. And the people back home in the cities would be waiting on bated breath. All of those city-states of the Greeks, their normal citizens, were waiting to find out who won the fight, who won the battle. There, there was no internet back then. There was no uh, news feed or Twitter or anything. It was a nerve-wracking event because you had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for the news. Who was going to come marching back over the hills? Was it going to be your army victorious in battle? Or would it be the enemy army coming to take over the city, making you all slaves? So while everyone was on pins and needles, as soon as the battle was won, the Greeks would send out a messenger on foot. This messenger often would would not just kind of stroll back, but would run back to tell the news. He would run to tell the news of the battle. And when it was a battle of victory, it was considered a gospel. We triumph. You on Gelion, good news. The gospel is that we have won. Our army has defeated our enemies. And so here it comes to the New Testament. And when they want to describe the message of Christ, the message of Christianity, what word do they use? The word gospel. Good news. That's what it's all about. This is the most basic and fundamental part of Christianity. A message of good news from God to humanity. The battle for salvation has been fought. Victory has been won. Slavery won't happen. And you will be at peace. The gospel then is a message. It is truth that is proclaimed, that's preached, even as Paul has already told us. If salvation then comes through this news, then salvation isn't about us doing something. Salvation is, is something that has already been done. Salvation is about hearing the good news preached and then responding in faith. The gospel is something that has to be heard and it has to be received. It has to be believed. Just as the messenger came announcing salvation from the invading army, so the gospel of Christianity is a message of salvation. But what is the nature of this salvation? Is it, is it the same kind of salvation, a salvation of war? What kind of battle was fought and won for us? Well, Paul answers these questions in the following verses. Verses 3 through 8, here we see that the good news of the gospel is about the work of Christ. This is the second essential element of the gospel we see in this passage. The gospel reveals Christ. The gospel reveals Christ. There's a good reason why Christianity is called Christianity with Christ at the beginning. The Christian gospel is all about Jesus Christ, what he did for us and for our salvation. The gospel is composed of four four essential elements, as Paul tells us here. First of all, Christ died for sins. Christ died for sins. This is what we read in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Christ died, right? This is why Christianity has the symbol of the cross. We read about that at the beginning of the service, that he was nailed to a cross and there he died, crucified. But why did he die? He died for sins. Whose sins? Our sins. Our sins. The Bible says that all of humanity is sinful. And because of our sin, God's wrath is being revealed against the world. Why? Because ultimately, by its very nature, sin is anti-God. He created us to know Him. 
but we have turned our back on him. Instead of loving and worshiping him the way that we should, we create gods after our own desires and reject a relationship with the one true and living God. This leads us to live contrary to the way we were created to live. And the Bible calls this rebellion sin. And it's because of that sin that the Bible says we deserve God's just wrath. But Paul says the good news is this. Christ died for sins. Christ died on the cross to willingly take the wrath that is coming towards us upon himself. On the cross, Christ stood in our place and suffered what we deserved. He shed his blood for our sins. Christ died to take the wrath for us. On the cross, he stood in our place and suffered what we deserved that we might live. This is why the gospel is gospel, why it's good news. Salvation isn't something we do for ourselves. The messenger doesn't come back running into town saying, I've got good news. The army is coming. And so so now we all get to go fight against them. That's not good news. It's bad news. That's terrible news. That's terrifying news. No, good news is this. The battle has been won for you. Salvation has already been accomplished. Your Savior has gone into battle and he has been victorious. Christ died not for himself, but for others to win salvation from sins. Do you remember the last of the Mohicans? In the course of the story, we meet uh, a large number of characters, but it all comes down to three people. We meet Duncan, the British officer who loves Korah, but she loves Hawkeye, the hero of the book. At the end, they're all prisoners in the Indian camp, and the Indian chief says, Korah will burn in the fire. Since Hawkeye and Korah don't speak the language that this particular tribe speaks, Duncan is translating for them. And when he tells them what was said, Hawkeye turns to Duncan and pleads, "Just you've got to tell the chief, me for her, me for her, my life for hers. Hawkeye looks to the chief and pleads with him, me for her, me for her. So the chief turns to Duncan to figure out what is being said and Duncan translates the language into the chief understands and he says me for her me for her he doesn't point to Hawkeye he points to himself and says me for her Duncan puts him himself in the place of Korah so the others grab Duncan and begin to take him to the fire even though they rejected him Duncan gives his own life to save Hawkeye and Korah And it's the same for the gospel and humanity. In our sin, we have rejected God and his lordship, living how we want to live, worshiping what we want to worship. But he comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, and he comes in our place. He takes the fire for us that we might be made right with God, forgiven of our rebellion and our sin. Christ died for sins and Christ was buried. This is the second thing that we see as an essential part of the gospel. Christ was buried. After teaching on the cross, this seems like maybe an odd afterthought. How can it be that important? If the pinnacle of saving work is that Christ died on the cross, why could it be of first importance, that Paul says, that Christ was buried? It's important because it says that Christ really experienced death. Some in Paul's day, especially the Greeks, were prone to believe that Christ merely appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. He was just a a, a phantom-like divine spirit. But the reality is that Christ was fully God and fully man. He was God's son who took on flesh. This is why he could be the perfect substitute to make peace between God and men. 
There was no denying that he really died. You don't put half-alive people in burial plots. And notice how this happened. Paul says his death was in accordance with the Scriptures. What does that mean? It means on one level, Christianity is not something inherently new. Now, on one level, it is true that Christianity began 2,000 years ago when Christ came and began to preach and died and was risen back to life. On one level, that's true. But on another level, it's not true. Because Christianity has deep roots that stretch back thousands of years beyond just the, the walking of Christ on this earth. All of the Hebrew scriptures, the part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament because it represents the Old Covenant, they all point forward to the coming of Jesus and his death and burial. His death was according to the scriptures first in the sense that it was predicted by them. One man, a a Jewish scholar named Alfred Edersheim, converted to Christianity. And he wrote a book showing several hundred specific prophecies about Jesus Christ, about the coming Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. In fact, so detailed were these prophetic words that another scholar has written a book and says, if Jesus was not really the Messiah, then there will never be a Messiah. Because so much has changed in history and culture and in politics that nobody else could come in the way that, that he came and fulfilled all of these specific prophecies of the Old Testament. But more than that, Jesus also fulfills the story of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? I mean that through the life and the law of God's people Israel, there was established patterns of life and reality that would only be fulfilled fully in the coming of Jesus Christ. So, for example, when you read everyone's favorite book, Leviticus, uh, I, I know Deuteronomy is really your favorite, right? When you read Leviticus, you see in one chapter all of the feast days that God gives to Israel. He essentially says, these are all of the celebrations, these are all of the parties that you're going to have every year. And they all speak to something specific about Israel's life and worship. But they also point forward to the coming of Christ as the promised Savior. So, in chapter 23, God tells them, celebrate the Passover. They are to sacrifice a lamb, remembering that God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt by first sacrificing a lamb and putting its blood across a doorpost so that the angel of judgment, when he came by, would see the blood and pass over that house knowing they were trusted in God to save them. So every year they are to sacrifice a lamb, to to eat it, to dine, to remember their redemption from slavery. After the Passover came the Sabbath, their weekly day of rest and worship. And then on the third day, on Sunday, there was the Feast of the First Fruits. On this day, the priest would wave a sheaf of barley, giving thanks to the Lord that he had given a new crop of grain. And the first fruits of that crop was the guarantee that the whole crop would come in, that God would provide for his people. Now, what does that have to do with Christ? When Jesus died, it was during the Passover celebration. He died fulfilling the sacrifice of the Passover. He was the ultimate lamb that was offered up for the salvation of God's people. God's wrath will now pass over them because it fell on Christ at the cross. On the Sabbath, his body rested in the tomb while his spirit was in worship with God the Father. And on the third day, Sunday, he was raised back to life. His body now glorified through resurrection as the first fruits of the resurrection of God's people. And that brings us to the third element of the gospel. Christ died for sins, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised to life. Christ was raised to life. 
Just as Jesus died according to the Scriptures, He was also raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. After Jesus dies and is raised, the disciples are astonished. I mean, they just cannot comprehend it. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, what, don't you know the Scriptures? Don't you know your Bible? Don't you know that God has said that it was predicted, it was foretold, that the, that the Messiah must suffer and then rise on the third day, bringing salvation to God's people? He says, all of this God was telling you beforehand, but you didn't have the eyes to see it. By raising Christ to life after his atoning death, God was vindicating his death on the cross. What does that mean? It means, as the one thief identified in the opening passage we read, Jesus, of all people, shouldn't have been crucified. That was for criminals. And he had done nothing wrong. So so why was this godly man put to death in an ungodly way? It was because he wasn't dying for himself. He was dying for others. And God vindicated that death. He showed that is exactly what was being accomplished by raising him back to life. He was the promised Savior. He did accomplish salvation for sinners. This is why Easter is so important for Christians. More than Christmas, in some ways even more than Good Friday. Because you can have Good Friday... But if you don't have Easter, Good Friday means nothing. That's what Paul goes on to say. If you don't have the resurrection, then it's all not true. It's not in vain. It doesn't mean anything. But the resurrection, Christ walking back out of the tomb alive and glorified, says God did this work. Salvation has been won. Moreover, when he was raised, what was the day? the day of the Feast of first fruits. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection was simply a sign of the beginning of the new creation that was coming. More than that, the beginning of what God was doing in the life of His people. God promises that for all who look to Christ, to all who trust in Him, relying on His perfect life and saving death to bring us to God, then they will experience a resurrection from the dead as well. First, a spiritual resurrection, the moment of faith. God raises us spiritually from the dead so that we can, we can know Him and we can love Him. He sends His Spirit to give us life. But more than that, that is just simply a down payment for the physical resurrection that we will one day experience as well. Christ will come back for His people and we will be raised from the dead in bodies like His that will no longer see corruption, that will never again die, and will no longer be tainted by sin. Christ was the first fruits and all who look to him in faith will be part of the full harvest that God brings in. Christ was raised to life from the dead and finally Christ was seen by others. Christ was seen by others. Today many people doubt the resurrection of Christ. They doubt that it happened. It's interesting though that during the first 200 years of Christianity, when all of its detractors, all of the people who are writing saying Christianity is bunk, it's no good, these people are terrible, the Jews, the Romans, everybody's writing against the Christians saying how terrible they are. The one thing they never say is the resurrection didn't happen. Now wouldn't you think that would be the first thing they would tack? Why don't they say that? Because I think of what Paul writes here in verses 5 through 8. He says that after Christ was raised from the dead, Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says, Christ didn't come to life and then just disappear. The disciples didn't just show up to an empty grave and say, well, I wonder what happened. Well, I guess he came back to life. 
No, no, no. Jesus wants to make it absolutely clear. He appears to them. He shows himself to them over and over and over again for, 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 for the, the month after he's raised from the dead. And Paul writes and he says more than 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. And most of them are still alive. If you doubt it, go talk to them. Can you imagine that? Go talk to this guy. He, he was there. And she was there, and he was there, and she was there, and she was there, and she was there, and she was there, and he was there. Go talk to them, and they will tell you what it was like to see a man come back to life from the dead. These were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Eyewitnesses whose word is reliable, whose word we have in the Bible. These then are the essential elements of the Christian gospel, that Jesus, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life in order to die a perfect death for sinners. And having atoned for sins on the cross, he was buried, fully experiencing death as judgment from God in our place. But on the third day, Christ was also raised to life as a sign of his victory over sin and death for sinners. And we have confidence that the testimony of that death and resurrection is true because God himself testified that it would happen by promising it beforehand in the scriptures. Moreover, hundreds of people saw the risen Christ alive and told others that they also might trust in him. That's the gospel of Christ. And when it's believed, it brings God's transforming work to the lives of people like you and people like me. And that's the final thing that we want to see this morning. The gospel saves, the gospel reveals Christ, and the gospel transforms lives. The gospel transforms lives. In some measure, all of the people that Paul just mentioned have been transformed by the gospel. Specifically, the completion of the gospel story, the good news seen in the resurrection of Christ. Peter and the rest of the twelve had followed him during his ministry, but they never quite understood how Jesus was going to be the Savior. They, they never quite got it. They were thinking in political terms, presuming that he would lead a rebellion against Rome. And when he did the opposite, when Jesus died, allowed himself to be arrested and tried and crucified, they didn't know what to think. In fact, it seemed like the end of everything they were hoping for. It seemed like the devastating proof that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, that they had wasted the last three years of their life. In fact, when the soldiers arrested Jesus, the disciples ran for their lives and hid in fear that the authorities might come after them as well. But then they met the risen Christ. Christ appeared to them and suddenly the men who were hiding in the shadows of darkened upper rooms were out in the streets boldly and fearlessly preaching that Jesus was the promised Savior for all mankind. Now they finally understood the truth. Then there was James. Of course, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but after his birth, Mary and Joseph, who were husband and wife, consummated their marriage. They went on to have other kids, and James was one of those children. And it's interesting that when you read the Gospels, James, along with all of his other brothers and sisters, thought Jesus was nuts, thought he was certifiable, thought he was a blasphemer for the things that he said. But then Jesus died on the cross, and he was raised back to life. And he appeared to James, and James was never the same again. He believed and went on to become a leader in the church of Christ. Then there is Paul. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. 
Not only was Paul not a Christian, he was one who persecuted Christians. As a zealous Jew, he thought Christ and the only Christians were blasphemers. So he beat them, he imprisoned them, he helped to kill them. And then he also met the risen Christ. Christ graciously revealed himself in power and glory to Paul, and his life was never the same again. He realized he was wrong in his assumptions and his understanding of the scriptures, and that Jesus really was the Christ. Suddenly he went from being a persecutor of the church to a builder of the church. Paul would go on to literally give his life to travel throughout the Roman Empire, telling others the truth that he himself had discovered, that the gospel was true and that Christ was the only Savior to make sinners right with God. And the reality for us today is this. Our lives can still be transformed by the gospel. Even today, God saves sinners by the power of the gospel of Christ. And if we were ever tempted to believe, not for me, I'm just too bad. I'm just too sinful. I've just done too many wicked things. If for no other reason than that, we simply look to the Apostle Paul, who actively sought to destroy the church And Christ not only forgave him, but made him an apostle in the church. One who would go from city to city to city, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. No one. Through the gospel, we can experience God's transforming work. We we are transformed from the inside out, from the very core of our being, by believing the truths of the gospel of Christ. By believing that Christ was the God-man who came from heaven to die for sinners and was raised back to life as the Lord of all things. When we trust in Christ to make us right with God, then we will be forgiven of our sins and given new desires to love and to worship God the way that we were created to. Today, then, we must hear the gospel and believe that we might be saved. And if you have already heard, if you have already believed, if you have already been saved, then hear again the gospel and again believe. Be reminded of the power that not only brought forgiveness, but that even now frees us from every sin that we might experience the joy of holiness and live for God's glory. Father, we are thankful for this gospel message. We are thankful for the work that you have done in bringing us to your son and the work that your son has done in bringing us to yourself. Father, we are thankful that we have not won the victory for ourselves. He has won the victory for us in all that he has done. That is the good news of salvation, God. We are thankful for it. We pray that you would help us to hear it and believe it for the glory of your son, Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.